This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. I want to thank you for your word. And we thank you once again for uh, the book of Matthew, which records for us the facts of what Jesus uh, experienced before he died. We pray that we may understand its meaning and how it applies to us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, the person who God brought to my life to help me uh, become a Christian was this uh, youth pastor called Joshua Ng in uh, Australia. And I've always uh, become very close to uh, Joshua since uh, he uh, led me to Christ. So I remember visiting him last year in uh, Sydney, Australia. And uh, he was telling me this true story about how an old relative of theirs... See, I can't remember the details. I'm very bad at the details, but this is the general facts, right? It's all fuzzy in my head. So anyway, his wife is Jewish and he is uh, Chinese. So I think it's... If I remember, the wife, uh, the relative of one of his, uh, from the wife's side, you know, one of the Jewish family things. So this long lost relative uh, gave to them some stuff uh, after they died, and it was all sorts of just junky stuff, like, right? And he he was telling me about how within all that junky stuff was this big carpet, you know, which he described as really raggedy, tattered old and torn, right? So when they got this carpet, they were like, what a piece of junk. What are we going to do with it, right? So they said, okay, let's put it in the garage. But then, you know, it was so big that, you know, it took out all the space in the garage. Finally, the wife, Karen, said, I just get rid of it, like, you know, just sitting there. So anyway, he brings it outside, puts it beside the road, and this man goes past and says, hey, are you throwing that out? And then Joshua says, yeah, I'm throwing it out. No, I don't want it anymore. He says, can I have it? He says, sure, take it. So then he goes off somewhere, gets his panel van, comes back, puts a carpet and goes off. And Joshua and Karen think nothing of it. A few months later, they go to the shopping mall and there's a carpet shop there. And they go into the carpet shop and they see a carpet which is very similar in terms of design and size and everything. And they sort of say, you know, how much is that carpet worth? They say, oh, that's the most expensive piece in the whole shop, right? It's, a, and it's a, an original Persian carpet and it's like worth more than... 30,000 Australian dollars. So, the reason why I'm telling you this story is because when people give us free stuff, we find it that sometimes we don't really value it, right? And I think that's a, the same when it comes uh, to Jesus and his death on the cross. Because, you know, it's free, right? It's, it's free. We didn't really do anything for it. Jesus gave it to us. God's grace allows us to have it. So, I think often we don't really value it to its full extent, because we didn't pay for it. Well, in today's passage, I think, in many ways, is teaching us to understand and to value the death of Jesus Christ. So, it begins in verse one by sorry, verse 31 by saying, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, when it begins with the word then, it actually brings us back to the last chapter and a bit more than that, where we learn that Jesus was the suffering servant who takes away the sin of the people. He's the Passover lamb, and also by his blood, he gives us a new covenant 
by which we have the forgiveness of sins. It also tells us that Jesus is the one who ushers in the new age and he will bring in this like wedding banquet where he will drink again the wine of celebration. And now Jesus brings his understanding of the future from way, way, way into the future, from the end of the ages, to the next few hours, right? And very shockingly, in the next few hours, he says that his closest disciples, the most loyal and intimate followers, will this very night, within the one to six hours, completely disown Jesus Christ. Now, it's kind of shocking because they've just shared a very intimate, very close meal of the Passover meal, but yet this closeness and intimacy will be replaced by disloyalty and cowardice in not just one or two hours, but it's just within six hours. All the disciples, all 11 of them, will deny Jesus. But it's more than that because Jesus actually quotes from this passage in Zechariah where it says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, within the original context in Zechariah, when it talks about the scattering of the sheep, the sheep scatter because they are unbelieving, they are unfaithful and they are apostate from God. So what Jesus is actually saying here is that when the, the, the disciples run away from Jesus, they are not just running away because they are scared, but they lose faith in Jesus, they disbelieve Jesus, and they no longer put their trust in Jesus. So what Jesus is saying is, in every way, within the next six hours, Jesus will be completely alone, and not just friendless, but he will be without anybody who believes in him and who trusts in him. And this is to fulfill what we read in Isaiah chapter 53, right? Because in every way he was despised and rejected by men, and he, like a man of sorrows and familiar suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and esteemed him not. Now, what is really amazing is that Jesus looks beyond the very night and looks beyond his death, beyond his resurrection, and he says that even though that they're going to be scattered after he is struck, but yet in a few days' time, in verse 32, after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So Jesus sees a time in which they will all the disciples will fall into disbelief, that after he resurrects, resurrects, Jesus will rise again, the people will come back into belief, and they will follow him into Galilee. Now this Peter is... Uh, Kind of like an ego guy, right? So actually, when you hear the words of Peter, right? Even if I die, I will follow you. Now, you don't know whether that comes from faith or whether that comes from ego, right? You know, whether that comes from, uh, you know, his pride being affected. You know, like, are you questioning how tough I am sort of thing, right? Or is it because he really, really believes that Jesus is God and he's going to be loyal to him to the very end? So, when Peter says... I will follow you even if everybody else disowns you. Jesus says very, very precisely, and this is an amazing thing, right? In the, face, in the space of like a few, few conversations, Jesus is able to see what's going to happen tomorrow, happens within the next few hours, the end of the earth, and now what's going to happen to Peter. 
And he says, Peter is going to deny him three times before the rooster crows. Now, I don't know, uh, because we don't really have many roosters in Singapore anymore, but apparently in the Middle East, the roosters crow at 12, no, 12.30, 1.30, and 2.30 a.m., right? Now, if I were living there, I'll kill them all, because how am I going to sleep, right? Okay, It's like your alarm clock goes off every hour, man. Okay, But apparently that's what happens. So, what Jesus is saying, that literally, Peter is going to deny him three times before 12.30, or before 2.30, the latest. right? Because that's the last rooster crow. Now that's really amazing because Jesus is able to predict exactly what is going to happen to the to the minute to the hour, and then we will, as we will see, that's actually what happens. Now, verse thirty six to forty six are, I think, one of the most important parts of this section because, for the very first time, we are able to see what Jesus feels. We always see what other people are doing and everything else, but we never see what Jesus is feeling. So, verse 36 is something which actually is like the opening up of Jesus' heart to show us how he feels about what's going to happen when he goes to the cross. So, Jesus, in verse 36, went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now, Jesus goes out of this really comfortable dinner room and he goes up to the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is like an oil press, right? So it's like an enclosure or like a small area where they used to press the olives so that you get olive oil. He brings three of his disciples with him, and it says here that he was, in verse 37, sorrowful and troubled. It literally means he felt deep grief and deep distress. And it goes on to say that Jesus himself said, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now, I want you to think for a moment, what is the saddest that you've ever felt, the most sorrowful that you've ever felt. I went to a funeral yesterday. Actually, I went to no, I went to a cremation yesterday, and it reminded me that actually the point in which people are the most sorrowful with grief is when the moment where the casket is going into the cremation area. Have you have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been to the cremation at Mandai and then you know you're standing in the hall there and then the casket is there. And then there's like this electronic thing goes, and then the casket, and then you open the door, and then you see these flames there, and then you see the casket going, and you see all the relatives, like they're completely breaking down. And I remember one of the cremations I went to, where this man was so overwhelmed with grief, that he stopped breathing. And the, the relatives are saying, breathe, breathe. And I think that that's how Jesus is being described in his grief here. Right? It says here that his soul was so overwhelmed with sorrow that he feels like he's dying. Now the reason why Jesus feels this way is found in the very next few verses. Because three times 
Jesus asked the Father, If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Right? And then later on, in verse 42, it is, If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away until I drink it. So, three times, he keeps talking about the cup. Now, what is this cup that Jesus is so afraid of? This cup that is making him so sorrowful. Is it like cappuccino, latte, right, grande? No, right? The cup, if you look in the Old Testament, always has connotations of God's wrath and God's judgment. So in Isaiah chapter 51, again from the section on the suffering servant, it says, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk the cup from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, you who have drained it to his dregs, the goblet that makes men stagger. And in Psalm 75 it says, But it is God who judges. He brings one down and exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its dregs. So the cup that is making Jesus very sorrowful and scared is not Pepsi or Coca-Cola. It is the cup that he has to drink which contains the cup of God's wrath. And this cup is actually meant for all of us, the whole world, but Jesus faces the drinking of this cup with dread and fear and sorrow and great suffering in his heart, sorrow in his heart. Now this is something that you need to remember from today's sermon because this was a mistake that I made when I was a very young Christian. I always thought that the suffering that Jesus... Oh, something like this. Huh? Okay, sorry, it's a bit... Oh. Okay. The suffering that Jesus experienced when he was at the cross is not the physical suffering. I always thought that it was the physical suffering. So, I'm sure many of you remember this... Uh, oh, you got to click the thing. This movie, The Passion of the Christ, right? It's by Mel Gibson. It's very famous. And the whole movie, next slide, uh, next slide, okay, I make it black and white because actually it's very bloody, right? So I, I realize Ruel is here, so I don't want to scare him. Right? But the whole movie is about how Jesus goes to the cross and, you know, they put the thorn on his head, there's blood dripping down his face, there's the nails in his hands, there's blood everywhere. That's suffering. That's what Jesus really suffered. But if you notice here, that is not what Jesus fears. Jesus doesn't say, take away the cross from me. He says, take away the cup of God's wrath. What Jesus is really grievously and painfully sorrowful about is taking the wrath of God, not so much the physical suffering on the cross. Now, when you read the book of Matthew, three times Jesus, in a sense, says to God, can I not do something? You can read through the whole of the account of Jesus' life, Jesus never disagrees with God. He never says to God, can I not do something, right? He's not like our kids, right? Our kids are constantly doing, saying, 
No. Right, rule? No. Okay? But Jesus never says no to God. He's always saying yes, except at this point, three times he says to God, can I find another way except from drinking that cup of God's wrath? But three times, Jesus is told no, and he must follow God's will. Now, I remember speaking to a Christian many years ago, and he said to me, he said, oh, no, what's the big deal about Jesus dying on the cross? It's just like, you know, he fell asleep for three days, and then he rose, right, from the dead, right? It's just like, you know, he was, had a long hibernation, right? I mean, you watch movies and people do interstellar travel, they sleep for decades, right? What's the big deal about Jesus sleeping for three days? But that's, that's not understanding what Jesus went through. Jesus didn't sleep for three days. Jesus took the cup of God's wrath for us. Well, by the end of this section, Jesus is not given a yes answer from God. He knows that... Hey, this thing is getting lower and lower. Okay, I'll do it, I'll do it. That's better. Okay, so Jesus, if you notice by the end of this section, doesn't get a yes answer. He still has to go to the cross, but you notice after he prays, he is strengthened by God in order to do his will. Right? He's no longer you know, very upset. He's like, okay, I, I'm strengthened now to do his will. Now, the next section then is the trial section, verse 45 onwards. Now, this section shows us that in every way, Jesus is unfairly and totally wickedly judged and sentenced to death. Now, in verse 45, he says to the disciples, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for a sword, drew it, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Needs more sword practice, right? Should have cut his neck off instead of his ear, right? Okay. Put the sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? He will, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. But how then? Would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Now, in chapter 26, if you remember, uh, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders and all that, they wanted to murder Jesus. But if you notice, the problem was that they were worried about the riot. So then, as we look at this passage now, we see exactly what it was that Judas was paid money for, right? What exactly was the transaction between Judas and the leaders? It was for information, right? Information is valuable. What they wanted from Judas was a time where Jesus was alone 
and where he could be arrested with no one but the 11 disciples around him. But more importantly also, they needed to identify Jesus because it would be a dark place. So Judas was paid to deliver Jesus into the hands of the military religious police and to actually identify Jesus in that dark place. So here, we see that in Jesus, every possible way that Jesus acts allows him to put God's plan, to put God's will into action and make sure that he is arrested as he is instructed to by God. He gets up, instead of running away, our natural reaction would be, hey, my betrayer is here, let's run, right? And we see the disciples do that often in different places. But no, Jesus says, let's get up and meet my betrayer. Then after he sees Judas, he says, Judas, friend, do what you came to do. And then when one of the disciples wants to fight back, he stops the disciple from fighting. But then look at what it says there in verse 53. He says that he has the power at his disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Now, a legion is 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. So, 12,000, sorry, 12 legions is how many soldiers? Your mess, not very good. Huh? Okay. Anyway, I missed my calculator. 36 to 36,000 to 72,000 angels. Okay, now if you look in 2 Samuel, an angel is a very powerful being, right? Okay, he's not the Cupid sort of angel, just shoot love arrows only, okay? The angel here, one angel, stretched out and destroyed, okay, and brought calamity of the, on the people, 70,000 people, right, from Dan to Bathsheba. So anyway, the reason why I bring this to your attention is Jesus has the capacity and the capability to draw on infinite forces to defend himself. But he doesn't. He chooses instead to walk the path of the suffering servant to fulfill scripture, to die for you and me. But that's not all. Because the trial before the Sanhedrin is really a great perversion of justice and it shows us that in every way Jesus was an innocent man condemned to die for our sakes. Look what it says there in verse 55 to 68. Right? It says that, sorry, verse 53 to 58. In that hour Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this is all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat there with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the souls and Edrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they could not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. 
The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, you, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered, and they spit on his face, and they struck him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now, if you look at this passage, step after step after step, it shows how in every way this is a terrible, shady business that is happening. Jesus says, Look, you had the opportunity to capture me at any time during the daytime in the temple, but you've chosen to come at night. By coming at night, you've already shown that you've, you know, you're doing a very shady business, right? You're, you're kind of doing things under the cover of darkness. Now, don't forget that the people in charge of arresting and charging Jesus were the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of the, the priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. These are the most religious people of God's people. They're supposed to be the most holy, the most wise, the most righteous, the model of godliness. Right? It's a bit like in today's day, you think about, I don't know, uh, a body of, of religious leaders or, uh, you know, the most religious people you can think of. Here are these people and they're doing the most despicably wicked things. According to the legal rules of the Sanhedrin, if someone is going to be charged with capital crimes, first of all, they must be judged in the temple. The second thing is, they are forbidden to have a night trial. The third thing is, they are required to actually deliberate for at least two consecutive days. And the last thing is, the defendant must have legal representation. They must have a lawyer there defending them. But yet, as we look at this passage, the very first thing that we see is that Jesus was seized in the middle of the night. He wasn't brought to the temple, but he was brought to the house of the high priest. And he wasn't given any legal representation. And the trial was a very quick trial. More than that, as you see here, it was because of false witnesses that the charges were actually laid on Jesus. Now, if you look up here on this slide, up here on the slide, God said very clearly to His people in the ninth commandment, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And again, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, do not spread false reports do not help a wicked man by being a false witness, or a malicious witness, sorry. But more than that, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, it goes on, it says, If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse a man of a crime, the two men involved in a dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, then do to him as he intended to do to his brother, you must purge the evil from among you. So God's word is very clear that 
not only are God's people A, not to give false witness, but B, if they do give false witness, they are actually to punish the people giving false witness. And who are the people supposed to punish? They are the priests and the judges and the leaders. But here we have Israel's religious leaders themselves not only not punishing the people giving false witness, they are actually the ones who are instigating the false witness themselves. Then finally in verse 61, we see that they managed to find somebody to come forward, or two people to come forward and declare that Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. But actually, if you look at the, the book of John, uh, next slide, the book of John, chapter 2, Jesus actually was speaking metaphorically, symbolically. He was using the language of temple to describe his own body. But the Sanhedrin were not interested in metaphor or symbolic language or the truth behind Jesus' words. They were only interested in two things. They wanted a charge that would stick to Jesus and they wanted a charge that would result in the death penalty. Right? A charge that would stick to Jesus, a charge which would result in the death penalty. So by taking these words of Jesus, they were saying that he was guilty of blasphemy because if you speak about the temple being destroyed, then in a sense you're speaking against God. But Jesus remains silent. He doesn't want to speak up in his defense. He has no legal representation. So the high priest himself speaks to Jesus and says, Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, this questioning by the high priest is not because he wants to learn the truth or he's interested in justice, but rather... He wants to frame Jesus to be a blasphemer and a liar and a hypocrite so that they can execute him. That's why when Jesus answers, you notice he expands on his answer. He says in verse 64, You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. So what he's doing is, he's saying, look, this is your understanding of me, that I am the Messiah, the Son of God, but I'm just a, some sort of loser, liar, right? But this is who I really am. This is my understanding of what the Messiah, the Son of God is. This is who I really am. And what Jesus is saying is that he is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, right? So if you look up Daniel chapter 7, Jesus is the one, the Son of Man, the Christ, who receives the kingdom from God, and because he has that authority, he will judge people with that power. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now this is actually very, very profound. Because Jesus is saying, look, you see me now sitting here as a victim, and you are the ones who's going to judge me. But from now on in the future, you will see me as the judge, and you will be the ones who I judge. So you are the ones judging me falsely now, but in the future I will be the one 
who comes in power and glory and majesty and I'll be the one who judges you truthfully. But as you can see, Jesus knows the hearts of the Sanhedrin. They are not interested in truth. They have found their charge to give Jesus the death penalty. And what comes up next is really a great condemnation to the leaders of Israel. Because they spit on him, they punch him, they slap him, and they mock and humiliate him. It's a bit like, imagine going to the high court of Singapore, and you know there's a big trial there, and after the, the, the uh, defendant is you know, charged as guilty, you see the judge come down and punch him, and slap him, and spit on him, and mock him, right? I mean, that will be in the newspaper. I mean, how can you see a judge ever doing that? The judge is supposed to be impartial, right? The judge is supposed to be looking for justice. But that's what they do to Jesus. Now, as we read this section, the wrong application, which unfortunately has been used wrongly in the past, is the Jews are terrible people, right? Look at the Jewish people, they're terrible. Right, especially the leaders of the Jews. You know, they persecuted our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Hitler and other people use this passage. See, see how terrible the Jews are? They killed Jesus, the Messiah. But they kind of forgot that Jesus is Jew himself, right? And also all the disciples are all Jewish too. Right? Ultimately, when we look at this passage, the right application must be that even though the Jewish leaders were the ones who humiliated, mocked, and killed Jesus on the cross, Jesus allows himself to go through this because of you and me. We are the reason Jesus was mocked. We are the reason that Jesus was punched. We are the reason that Jesus was slapped. He is the one who willingly put up with the false arrest, the false witnesses, and the false trial because of your sin and my sin. It is because of our sin that Jesus walks the path that he walks. And that's why when we read this passage, it should make us all the more grateful for what Jesus has done, all the more aware of the depths of our sin and the obedience of Jesus to go this path to pay for our sins. Now the last part is the very sad story of Peter's denial of Jesus Christ. He is the last remaining disciple standing by Jesus. A servant girl, or literally a slave girl, approaches Peter and accuses him of being a follower of Jesus. Now this is important, right? Because a slave girl in the ancient world is like the lowest rung of society, right? You know, imagine like the society has, uh, you know, many, many rungs of prestige. The slave girl is like the lowest. And here, Peter, who was so brave before, even if I have to die, I stand by you, right? Is unable to stand before the accusations of a slave girl. I mean, I don't know how old a girl is, right? Who knows? She might have only been 16 years old, 17 years old, but, but he can't stand before her charge. The second person that accuses Peter is another girl, again in the ancient world, not very high up on society's standard. And again, Peter denies Jesus. Now, 
you got to imagine, right, this is not some big mixed martial arts guy or Roman centurion with a, with a spear saying, hey, you are Peter, you are Jesus, right? It's some girl saying, hey, you know, you and Peter, right? And yet, Peter not only denies Jesus, but what he does is he makes an oath before God. He swears an oath, he appeals to something spiritual, some power, to say, I never knew Jesus. Lastly, a group of people challenge Peter, and he not only denies Jesus a third time with oaths, but he curses himself. It's like the highest of everything you can do. Not only do you make an oath by God, but you curse yourself, right? You know, like, may my mother die, or you know, may my children, whatever, right? It's like he takes it to the highest degree to show that he never knew Jesus. And the, 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 the rooster crows, and Peter weeps. Now we end this uh, chapter with Jesus being all alone, falsely accused, mocked, slapped, punched, beaten, spat at, humiliated, and is to show us that the path that Jesus walks the cross, he walked because of you and me. You know, I, I remember reading somewhere that uh, they did a study where they gave these people, I don't know whether cinema tickets or tickets to watch a ball game or something, and they asked the people who got the free gift if it was raining, would you still go? Compared to the people who bought the ticket themselves, if it was raining, would you still go? And they found that people who received the ticket for free were much less likely to go if they were inconvenienced by rain than if they bought the ticket for themselves. I think that's very logical. I can imagine that. So, I mean, if I buy my own movie tickets, I might you know, definitely go if it was raining. But, but if someone gave me some movie tickets, I would probably not go. Now, I think that that is the danger that we have with Jesus Christ. If we don't see the suffering of Jesus drinking the cup of wrath, emotionally, how sorrowful he was about drinking the cup of God's wrath that, that we were meant to drink, if we don't see the humiliation of Jesus and the willingness for him to go through that trial, if we don't see the pain of Jesus and the the disloyalty and the disowning of him by the disciples. And if we don't appreciate the, the, the journey that Jesus took for our sins, then I think it's very easy for us to not value what Jesus did for us. I remember reaching, reading a preaching book by a pastor sharing about how there was a person in his congregation who was married to a drunk husband who used to get uh, you know, abused. It was a terrible life. She was living in poverty. Many things went wrong in her life. And how the woman told him that the one thing she looked forward to on Sunday was to hear the sermon because the sermon allowed her to be refreshed spiritually and to remember what Jesus had done for her. And that kept her going for another week through the difficult, sad life that she went through. I think that today's passage is exactly that sort of passage because it reminds us the cost and the price that Jesus paid in order to give us forgiveness. 
And as we see the price that Jesus paid, then all the more we value our faith in Jesus, what it brings us, and we are less likely to give it up, and we're less likely to take it for granted, and we're less likely to let it go. So I hope that as we look at this passage, it's not something that we intellectually just understand, oh yeah, you know, Jesus is very sad. But we actually see the depths of Jesus' sadness and his suffering and really appreciate what Jesus went through for us. Okay, I'll close in prayer and then we can have questions. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we really pray that as we look at your word today, we will step out of the busyness of our life, the distractions that we face, and to see how much Jesus suffered for us individually and corporately for our sins. That He didn't just go to the cross and suffer physically. He took the cup of wrath for us. He was willingly humiliated and abandoned by the disciples. He was willing to be physically abused and mocked. He was willing to put up with false witnesses saying false things about him even though he was innocent. And all these things he did because of us. So we pray for each and every one of us that we would value Jesus and not take him for granted. Not to uh, underestimate or undervalue him but to see the pricelessness of this gift that you've given us. And all the more to be walking in Christ and to not let him go. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.